result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. If conditions at your location make this a possibility, you need to consider staying in place until the threat has subsided or blown over. It's in our DNA. We choose the way of earth. We choose the right people we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with earth and a way not to live with earth. We choose the way of earth. My name is Ansley Jemison, and this is the Ongwe Ongwe Podcast. I'm coming to you from the Seneca Art and Cultural Center at Ganondagan State Historic Site. This was a site of a 16th century, 17th century Seneca village excuse me, that was destroyed by the French in 1687. It is now protected as a state historic site within what is now known as New York State. However, this is still the ancestral territory and traditional territory of the Onondawaka people, people of the Great Hill, the Seneca people. With me today are a couple of artists who recently entered two pieces in the Haudenosaunee Art Show that was hosted here at the Seneca Art and Cultural Center. And I wanted to sit down with these two gentlemen because they're a couple of guys that are from my community. Um, they're both Seneca Nation men. Um gentlemen really and artists and just really cool people that i want you all to familiarize yourself with get to know hear them and um hopefully we can delve into some of that and just kind of unpack who they are um because i think they wear many hats both in the community um at home but also abroad and and beyond and they're both doing important work and one of the pieces that the gentleman um submitted actually ended up being best in show and you're going to see the photographs some of the images and things like that and i think that it, it definitely um was deservedly so the uh, the best of show um it's contemporary it's real um it's functional which i think is pretty cool i just found out and um yeah we'll talk a little bit about that so with me today is mr dale and maybe um, please introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from, um, what you're up to these days, and then we'll kind of delve into the art afterwards, and then um, we'll introduce our next guest after that. So please, Mr. Maybe. All right, thank you. So I'm Dallin, I'm Northern Arapaho in Seneca, I grew up on uh, Cataraugus territory, but I'm enrolled Arapaho in Central Wyoming, Wind River Reservation, and I currently live in Longmont, Colorado, just outside Boulder. I've been out there for about three years now. I work for a Native American Rights Fund as an assistant director of development. So I primarily handle our foundation relationships, corporation and tribal relationships. Um, but I've always kind of done art on the side, even before law school and after law school. And I tell people it kind of keeps me sane. So it's uh, very zen-like. Um, to step away from all the, the challenges of, of life and have a creative outlet that kind of presents some of the narratives that you just sort of create and, and cultivate in your mind. Absolutely. Well, that's amazing. And the work that you've done and what you are creating is definitely um, 
appreciated and, and timely, and I'm excited to hear more about it as we go along. So let me bring in our next guest here, um, and this gentleman I literally grew up with, um, spent a lot of time with, just kind of um, in and around each other back in Allegheny on territory and things. And um, it's a person that I really heavily admire and I appreciate um, when we do get to cross paths now as we're adults and things like that. And there's just never enough time when we get together to sit and talk and, and really catch up. But I think wherever we leave it, we kind of are always able to pick back up where we left off the last time. And and um, it's just always it's always good because he's always challenging me and always kind of bringing things to my to my frame of mind and, and thought. And, um, you know, I just really appreciate this gentleman. So please, Adrian. Yeah, my name is Adrian John. That's my English name. Uh, my Seneca name is Yutdeo, uh, which means he's a good friend, um, <laughs> which I received at the Allegheny and Cold Spring Longhouse. Yeah. Um, I'm of the Hot Clan of the Seneca. I was born and bred from Allegheny, Ohio, um, Allegheny Seneca. Um, but I, now I live in the Kedarog Surrey in the Newtown community with my family. Awesome. And the work that you're doing today, Adrian, I mean, you're you're working with material cultures and understanding and learning more and teaching uh, people about traditional materials, traditional cultural artifacts and things like that, but really contemporary versions of these and bringing those things back and how are people working with them and doing that stuff. Um, and I know that you're instrumental also with helping set up maybe the studio and the, the workspace for, for young people. Um, how did that come about and what, what was that interest for you? Well, uh I don't know how many years ago it was. Uh, I was in the um, Faith Keeper ceremonial program in 2008 for a couple of years, and then I uh, moved into Tipo office for a year. And then uh, we started a language initiative in 2011, uh, trying to hire, you know, create hundred, hire hundred language teachers. Uh, so I had to had brought together a plan and proposed it, and they said okay. And so there we went. So I've been a part of the language program since that time period. So, but even before then. Um, I've worked in education, the Seneca Nation Education Department since I graduated high school or college, pretty much. So, um, and now, you know, I we moved to Cataraugus, and uh, we a couple of years ago we put in a proposal to get the old uh, early childhood center in Cataraugus, and so we we received it, and said great plan, let's do it, and so we have it, and uh, we created the Sully Heritage Stanley Huff uh, Stanley Sully Huff Heritage Center on the Cataraugus territory. So. It's where we house our um, our language programs, as well as our uh, cultural arts and the Native Roots Artist Guild is held is housed there. Cool. Uh, so it was a you know an overall plan for all of that comes place to one one spot, uh, not so much to be a museum because we've always talked about Kettleogs needs a museum or something, but we don't need a museum. We need a hands-on living space. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to practice and learn the culture and the material culture and the language. So. That's what the buildings become. So it's and those things go hand in hand. So it's great that they're housed in the same place, and that's so that you know there can be that crossover and whatnot, yeah. and that that interaction, which is um, definitely necessary, and I think definitely appropriate. So that's awesome, and what a cool you know responsibility to have and to be a part of. You know, yeah. is to be able to have and um, to spend that time. And so 
I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the folks that you're able to interact with and work with, I mean, are, are a lot of these people community folks that you're getting to work with and interact with? And how are they, you know, how are they feeling about this, you know, getting called out and being able to be a part of these sort of things? Well, I, I tell them, I always tell them, I said, this is the best job in the nation. Where else are you going to get paid to learn to be the best of who you are as a, as a Native person? You're getting, you know, you're given the opportunity to spend your whole time and hopefully life to, you know, learn it and to be able to teach it off. You know, we're, you know, recently been telling you, you guys are the um, the next leaders and teachers that our grandkids will look at. They're going to be learning the language from you because you're going to be the last generation to be having this relationship with fluent speakers. So you're going to be like, I remember when Seneca sounded like this, that'll be us. And uh, so it's great. We have a really good staff of um, learners and workers and um, our drive is to become uh, more program oriented. Uh, for years, we have done a, a have we've done after school summer programming, um, teen programming, uh, lots of arts workshops over the last few years that we've been in there. And uh, this over COVID, we we had to take that break, and so returning after a year and a half of not working, uh, we're taking this year to retrain and redevelop, and uh, so that's what we've been doing and getting ready for next year uh, when we'll have kids programs again. So. And other programs, because we have a pottery room, we have a wood shop room, we have a bead room, a sewing room. Um, we have all these hands-on spaces that um, we hope to have the artists come in and use them um, and, you know, make them available for the community to come in and learn. Uh, we even have hired on uh, Pete Jones, who's a renowned Iroquois potter. Sure. So he's there, um, you know, working, working with our staff as well as working with the community. So we'll be really, you know, getting things going here in the next year that it's going to be pretty awesome. It's been pretty awesome so far. Though. Now, in terms of the, I mean, what a, what a valuable resource for the community, absolutely. Um, in terms of young people coming up through, um, are you seeing an interest being taken? I mean, are the kids kind of taken off with some of this art? I mean, it's always been a thing that we've had artists in our communities and whatnot, but a lot of them are all being self-taught. A lot of them, this stuff was happening in the home. It was maybe an uncle or a grandfather who was the person that was kind of passing this on. You know, where are we seeing? You know, where where are young people at with this today? Are they are they taking the interest? Do they care about these things? And do they do they love it and appreciate it as a as a resource? Yeah, they do. We have uh, we've had about eighty to hundred students over the last few years in their summer and after school programs. So they're coming through, and um, the teen group. Uh, is really involved. They're really involved in a lot of community stuff, uh, mm. from socials and ceremonies, and uh, they're the ones that are out there singing at some of the the recent uh, memorial walks that we have. Um, so, and they're they're pulling their own things. Like their birthdays that they have for themselves are socials at the longhouse. I mean, one put on like a, a whole dance show type thing for a smoke a smoke shot or smoke dance competition. So, they're into it. And you see, they're the ones that are showing up at. Our local our longhouse and participating and being involved, and they came through our program, you know. So and we're only looking at the the other, you know, seventy kids that are in a program will eventually be there too, and that's what we're trying to grow is that that love for our our lifestyle, our, our history, our art, um, our music, and our language. So and they're you know they joke in it pretty good, and they you know they participate in all the aspects of it. And so that one thing is. We're always, I'm, I'm kind of like the guy, my line is I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. I could do a lot of things from sculpting to beading to painting, but um, I just like to know a lot about all of it. And anytime I'm trying to teach somebody something, I, I always tell them my line is I, I'm, I teach everyone everything that I have or whatever I have. And 
if you become great at it, it's awesome because uh, um, that's the whole point. You know, you n I never know who is going to be the next best whatever. So got to introduce them first, though. Yeah, I mean, again, you as a resource for them is um, invaluable and it's it's great. And I think your your approach and your humbleness around it. I mean, you know, you're you're a pretty good force to reckon with yourself. I mean, in terms of your skills and abilities and things. So, um, and yeah, I mean, definitely a, a jack of all trades is a great um, <laughs> description. Um, you know, so. I think with that too. I mean, you know, let's let's maybe lean into one other little topic that I wanted to touch on, is you know your work as a coach, you know, and some of the concepts and the ideas that you brought to the game, our game, you know, the medicine game, lacrosse, they want you. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about in terms of like lacrosse and you know it being a healing game, a medicine game, um, little brother of war, whatever that is, but. You took it to another level, and you worked with group students that were part of your program that you're doing, you know, with the nation, and you extended this out into like a lacrosse program in a local high school, Lakeshore High School, um, just off territory um, outside of Cataraugus, and you guys were bringing back traditional values, traditional teachings, teamwork, and things like that, and met a quite a bit of success, and now it's kind of given you this visibility amongst college coaches, recruiters, and things like that, um, other community members, and other high schools locally. Um, tell me a little bit about that and what were some of the challenges and what were what was the, the, the thought process around that? Well, I've, I've been coaching lacrosse since I uh, got out of I, uh, graduated college and uh, started out with box lacrosse with my Uncle Ed, and um, we had a good group there, and then it turned into field at Salmanca for so many years, and then we were coaching the Allegheny Arrows for so many years, and then... Uh, we had really good success those years. I probably won three championships with the NAMWA with my teams and then help assistant coach with a couple of others. North came. American Minor Lacrosse yep. Association, NAMWA. Okay. And then, um, so that's indoor box. And then um, we've you know, been pretty close with uh, Salamanca reaching the uh, sectionals and then winning one. Um, then a few years ago, I, uh, I was coaching at Salamanca still, but I, my family had moved to Cataraugus and I was going to Lake Shore. And so that point just happened where I'm coaching this other group of kids and I'm missing my own kids game. So I had to take that moment and just decide that I was going to offer my services to the Lake Shore. And then they asked me to be the modified coach. And I was like, yeah, great. And then I had one son on that team. So we um, went through there and, you know, we went undefeated our, that first season. And the next season they offered me to be the head coach. So I took that and we We've had a lot of success. We're, we're split 50-50 for the first couple of years that I've been there um, with win percentages and that. But we are developing players, you know. We're developing a, a, a style that's our own. It uh, can be flashy. It's fast. It's aggressive. Um, sometimes not always in order because the boys are so excited. They just want to keep pushing it rather than <laughs> play smart sometimes. But, uh, but over the COVID time, though, we took a, a little break and... Um, or I did, and just thought about like, what am I? How am I doing this? What's important? Because I've had years with Salmaker players where we won, we won in Allegheny, and then we'd have problems with it. Some kids just, a lot of them would go to school or didn't go to school or didn't make it. Some ended up in jail, and that perception of how much they received, like in honor and you guys are awesome, this and that, and how much maybe that kind of affected them to that point where they're maybe a little arrogant. I don't know, but. And that's what I always teach us, that play with confidence, but don't play with arrogance. Treat yeah. the other team with respect and be responsible for that. And 
Um, so with this team here, this new one that we had, uh, we went 15-0 and last season on the section. Um, young, kind of a young team, uh, but they were bought into it. They, they go through the whole process. We use a lot of language with them for play calls, and um, they have such a, a good camaraderie amongst them in culture and, um, and the love for the game. And, you know, the big thing is trying to transition that idea of how it was before with winning to, you know, trying to develop really good young men who are responsible, who want see this lacrosse as not just the only lacrosse, but maybe a ticket for college and become more, more responsible in that sense of their future. And one of the things I learned since I was at Faithkeeper School um, was because it's a medicine game and haven't been involved in the medicine game, whether playing in it or whatever, um, the you know, that, that concept came from an elder's like, since it is a medicine game, even all across, isn't it right to pray or something like that before the game? Mm -hmm. And so quite a few years ago, back in Salamanca, that's what I said instituting with most of my teams is before the game, we pray and have this prayer for uh, the creator, for uh, for them to be safe and to play, you know, well and play with respect, one mind. And so now before every game, whether box or uh, field, uh, we have that. And they, they understand it's tradition to kneel and Everybody sees us out there, and so I think it helps them in their mindset. It gives them that respect for it, and a focus. Be, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like it's a it's a holistic approach, you know. And like you mentioned, you're building and developing, you know, young men, you know, in a way, and next leaders and next sort of community folks and things like that. And um, and that stuff goes a long way, you know. I mean, and you know, my saving grace, I think, through a lot of my life was being involved with team sports and things like that. And um, I've got a lot of really good, you know, coach talk and a lot of sort of, you know, half halftime speeches and things like that that are still rattling around in my head. That at different times they come up and you know it's funny when I can put it and apply it to something else, like in my my, my modern day life, you know, and it's <laughs> such a crazy thing. And when I was coaching and work, or when I when I was working actually at Cornell and as an advisor, I did a lot of coaching. I felt more so than advisement. And um, my colleagues were even kind of calling me coach, you know, at that time. So it was kind of a funny thing. But um, that's cool, you know. And I think that uh, what you were touching on before was it's difficult to handle success, you know, when you're a young person. And, and how do you deal with that and how do you manage that? Um, how do you manage expectations and things? And being grounded and kind of having an understanding of, like, how Indigenous people kind of conduct ourselves and how we interact with one another and that sort of showing and protocols for respect and things like that are kind of ingrained in everything that we do in a way where there's a, there's sort of this humbleness. Um, but I think it also goes back to us being sort of maybe tribal people in a way that are like, we have a, a way of like kind of making fun of one another or picking at each other in a way that we can kind of level each other back out. I mean, nobody can escape a nickname, you know, growing up and everybody gets a nickname and man, some of those nicknames, you're just like, you know, you could think you're flying high and you're whatever else, top of the world, and all of a sudden somebody just call you by your nickname when you're a kid, and you're like, damn it, you know what I mean? Like, bring you right back down to earth, you know? And um, and I think that's cool, you know, I, and I appreciate that about um, who we are as people. Sometimes it can go a little bit, be a little bit too much, you know, where we can kind of be our own detriment and bring each other down. But um, if it's all in good, you know, all in good, you know, spirits and things like that, and as long as we're trying to help that person as opposed to tear them down, um, I think it's a, I think it's appropriate. Um, so let me shift over and let's maybe kind of ride in this little discussion about success, but also in achievements and things like that. But let's talk to a man who has gone on to get a law degree, um, an indigenous man who's gone on to get a law degree. 
Um, there's not many of us that have done that, I don't think. And um, Dalen, like, what what drove you to that? I mean, you know, was it a, a series of uh, parking tickets that you had to get taken care of, or was it just something you're just like, you know, I want to really learn and understand, like, what it is exactly that they're using against us in terms of the law to, to take away what we have? <laughs> it was kind of a probably a culmination of things that pushed me in that direction. Um, I guess when when I started college, I wasn't super focused or committed. I ended up taking a break because I wasn't doing too well, and then I decided to go back. And I think in all the different life experiences I had, I, I think I was looking for a, a degree that would be very versatile that I could use to, to give back somehow to um, whichever tribe I ended up working for. Um, and so, you know, I, I cruised through undergrad, I got a philosophy degree, not because it was super interesting, but it required like 10 less credit hours than all the other degrees or something. And where I didn't was realize how hard it would be. <laughs> where, where was undergrad? Where did you? Uh, I started at Brigham Young, and then I finished at Utah Valley. No kidding. Utah Valley University, just down the road. Um, and then I did some master's work. I deferred law school for a year to go to UCLA, hoping I could matriculate into their joint degree program. You can get a master's and a JD in four years rather than five, but it didn't look like that was going to work out. So I <clears throat> jumped into law school. And, you know, it was a struggle because it's, you're, you're teaching um, kind of foreign concepts and ways of thinking about issues and challenges and creative solutions um, but it was it's part of a system that uh, is often used against our people and so you know this body of law called federal Indian law encompasses all kinds of different topics everything from environmental and sacred site protection treaty rights and protecting or asserting or defending uh, inherent tribal sovereignty so that was always fascinating because I, I, you know, I grew up on Kairos territory and it, it was often very volatile, politically, tribally. We had constant conflict with the state of New York over taxation and, you know, the rights that we felt were, we were entitled to. So I see all these things happening and, and I just felt like, well, you know, from where I've been to where I'd like to go, I think the, the law degree will help me get there. So, yeah, it was good. Amazing. And um, yeah, and, and, and Yahweh for that, because that's interesting. And I think we always kind of have that same sort of um, feeling or idea around like what we're doing and what we're off to, set off to go and do is to help and give back, you know, and that's not the same with like our peers when we're in school, you know, this our peers in school are, I'm going to get mine. You know, I'm going to go off and I'm going to go get this degree and I'm going to go make a bunch of money and I'm going to go have the McMansion and the cars and the whatevers, you know. And um, indigenous people, we still have that sort of, we owe something to somebody back home or we owe something back to our community. Or, and there's that, again, that humbleness, I guess, is, is maybe what it is. Um, but I think that, you know, at times, again, it's it's those foundations and support systems that are back there. That also keep us focused and keep us driven and keep us yeah. keep us going through that stuff. Um, Brigham Young, how did that happen? Uh, my mom was a convert to the church when she was in her late teens or late twenties, so she went to BYU. Um, 
And they had a, in the 70s and in the 80s, they had a pretty strong multicultural program. So a lot of scholarships for Native kids. Um, yeah, they have their own history about, uh, you know, tribes and, and their theology. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I, I met some lifelong friends there. And uh, ultimately, I didn't fit in exactly, so I chose to leave. But uh, I do have a bunch of friends who were very successful coming out of there. It's a good spot because you are around other Indians. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all over. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, we're, you know, right down the road from where, you know, that whole thing happened, down in Palmyra, <laughs> New yeah. York, and right in the backyard of the Seneca people, you know, mm -hmm. is where a lot of the story of um, the Latter-day Saints happened. So that's yeah. that's interesting and, um, well, cool. I mean, so, so now NARF um, and Colorado and, and all of that, I mean... That's getting closer to home for for maybe your your other identity, your other um, you know where you're enrolled and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, is there a duality? Do you feel that duality? I mean, do you feel connected? Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, it's hard because you know I didn't grow up there, so you know I, I'm familiar with my my immediate family and my uncles and aunties and cousins there. But when we start, you know, there's a familiarity that. You just have from growing up in the community and people know who you are. So I've always felt that sort of disconnect because I don't know everybody mm -hmm. at Sundance. And I, you know, um, but I try and participate. You know, I went through Sundance, I go through our ceremonies there because um, I feel that's also part of my responsibility as, as a rock man. You know. um, but it's nice being in, in Colorado because that is the traditional homelands of our people. And, um, we've got a lot of history there. I can go and see teepee rings and areas and know where some of our sacred sites are. Um, and and you know, even long where I lived, I just established a sister city relationship with the tribe. So it was cool to see, you know, tribal names and, and recognition in varying parts, despite a very difficult history with the state of Colorado. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah. Interesting. So, in terms of the work that you're doing with like the foundation and everything like that with through NARF, um, you had mentioned that you get to travel and interact, and um, you know, what are what are the, some of the things that you're trying to do with that foundation? What are you trying to establish and try to keep building up and things like that? Is it resources and funding to keep programs alive, and also to kind of keep people on task and on point with like you know diff different initiatives that are coming up in indigenous territories and things? Um, so NARF is primarily a, a legal nonprofit, so we only handle programs and casework that involves tribal relations. Mm -hmm. We don't do any tribe versus tribe stuff. Yeah. We don't do a whole lot of individual stuff. Um, but because a lot of our tribal clients just simply can't afford the level of legal advocacy we provide, we do depend on a large portion of our budget from philanthropy. Yeah. So foundations, a lot of individual donors. Um, so, you know, in our, and as I mentioned, our casework and programming is mostly under that umbrella of federal Indian law. So if it impacts tribes on, on any level, we're probably from Indian Child Welfare Act to all the environmental stuff. Uh, and so, you know, I prosecuted for a little bit out of law school, and then I, because I'd been doing art, I ended up on the board for Swaya that produces Santa Fe Indian Market. Eventually transitioned off the board and into a leadership position there. 
and yeah, just because of the different life experiences I had, I, I uh, transitioned from there to NAR, and it's been a good fit. You know, I, I enjoy it. I'll probably go back to practicing law at some point, but um, right now, uh, it's great to to know that the work that we do directly impacts so many different tribes. You know, if you have an adverse decision or a beneficial decision for one tribe, it has the potential to impact all tribes. So it can be very critical uh, that uh, our caseworking program provides just the absolute best in, in strategy and, and legal efficiency and effectiveness. So it's, it's cool. It's yeah. Good well, I, my exposure, my experience was um, when the 2014 World Games were happening um, in Colorado, mm. um, a, a number of the folks that work with NARF um, welcomed us and kind of, oh, you know, uh, we had interactions with them as the Iroquois Nationals and mm -hmm. got to work with some of the folks there. And they were very generous with their time and helpful. And, um, and you know, because we travel with Haudenosaunee documents and passports and things like that, getting some counsel as well, you know, as to like what that looks like and trying to maintain and foster those relationships. And, you know, what does it look like to, you know, move forward and move into the world where indigenous recognition, native recognition happens globally? You know, obviously I know at the UN there's been a number of initiatives and things like that that have kind of been enacted and talked about, but where do we get the teeth behind that a little bit more? You know, where does that really come to fruition? where you know we're all able to travel on some sort of a form of an indigenous passport or or whatever that is and and also going back and talking about our treaty rights and things and mm -hmm. you know treaties are written nation to nation what does that really look like and how does that really play itself out um is there an international division within narf that deals in something like that yeah you know they they've been um working on <laughs> everything from climate change to the UNDRIP uh, proclamations on indigenous rights. So it's it's been around a while. How how much progress we make can vary um, in opinion pretty pretty wildly. Um, you know the, the countries with substantial indigenous populations have always been the last ones to recognize any sort of indigenous rights. Um, and so it's it's a tough road. But yeah, we'll keep at it. Well, definitely worthy causes and, you know, things to take on. So I'm, I'm appreciative of what you do and, and who you are for that. Um, okay, so let's dip into the art a little bit here. Um, let's first talk about the piece that was a collaboration between the two of you. Um, it's a war club. Um, now, we're supposed to be the people who've come under the idea of the message of peace. So, Adrian, should I be waving my finger at you and telling you you should know better? Or... Um, damn, it's just a cool war club, and let's talk about it. So what was the impetus behind it? Um, tell us a little bit about the process, and you know what got you guys to, to join up on this? You start? Yeah, you start. Yeah. So I think we've both, both been fascinated with historical Seneca pieces and, and showing pieces, and, and war clubs were always part of that. Um, I don't know. Adrian had been carving some, and I've carved a few war clubs. Yes, yeah. and uh, he, they're you're not supposed to use them amongst each other in the in Haudenosaunee, so the outsiders still have to be aware that we're there. So, <laughs> gone but not forgotten. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was a visit, and um, uh, I saw this club that he was working on. And I was like, "Hey, man, you should probably trade that with me." 
give it to me. So I don't know. I can't remember how I acquired it, but uh, I had it at my house for for a while. And um, you know, I've had some ideas for war clubs swirling around in my head, but I, I work in a few different mediums, and beadwork is is so labor intensive. It's hard to get to. Every artist knows that struggle. You know, what do you prioritize and what do you work on? And then COVID, so COVID hits, and and I had done. Um, uh, another gas mask. There's there's probably three beaded gas masks in the world, right? One was with uh, my ex that she had completed, and it had she's been nominating Ho Chunk, and it had classic florals, binds, um, you know everything you imagine when you look at bandolier bags from from that that those tribes. And uh, you know when she first approached me with the idea of a gas mask, I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. I don't know how. We could bead that. Um, so we actually did it the hard way. We covered it in, in brain tan buckskin and then she went at it, right? But there's so many little crevices and it's hard to do even a running stitch. Uh, there's a couple different stitches for flat work. Um, but she, she completed it, it was super clean. She eventually did a, a child's outfit with a gas mask as part of a traditional Menominee Ho Chunk outfit. It was beautiful. So, you know, I had had that kind of swirling around in the back of my brain for a while. And, um, you know, every year I, I participate in two or three or four fine art shows, native fine art shows. And, you know, you always want to create a, a larger piece that's competitive. Um, you know, I'm sort of a competitive person. So I like, um, you know, putting my art out there in a big piece and seeing how it does. The ribbons are always great because you're, you're often recognized by your peers. Um, but the prize money doesn't hurt and you can offset some of your expenses to sure. travel and things. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, what kind of um, project could I do? Because a lot of the shows have been shut down. But here we are in this, you know, once every hundred year um, experience. And we're, we're, in, we're enduring it collectively. It's not just Native people that are suffering again from disease and bacteria and virus. It's all of us, this humanity. And it kind of just hit. I, um, I, I was looking at florals and wow, that kind of looks like a COVID um, ball. And that could be a bacteria. And then I was like, oh God, I should do some florals with these viruses and bacteria represented. Um, and so I created a pink piece and one best of show last fall at a, a Cherokee art market. Um, and, and it sold, and and there and I thought I would have it for most of the year to enter and show, and and if it sells, that's the icing on the cake. But if it doesn't, then you can always enter it in in galleries or, or exhibitions at museums. Sometimes museums will put pieces up. It's been great. Right? So I pushed to get this black one done, and you know I learned from the first one. I was comp I was completing the beadwork for the most part separately, and then attaching it to the the mask itself because it is fully functional. I didn't want to pierce the mask in any way, um, but I got more adept at hiding my seams. The, the beadwork was infinitely more flatter because I was working uh, uh, on the pieces separately. Um, and, it, and it does, it talks about our collective suffering through not only this pandemic, but from the bubonic plague, as well as smallpox. And it's just this crazy narrative about our collective suffering. Um, but those DNA strands and, and quote-unquote vines, 
you know, you look at those and you can't tell. It's a native person, a non-Indian person. It's all of our DNA strands look very similar. So sure, that's the the binding connection. So as part of that, there's some florals that look like this bubonic plague uh, uh, bacteria with the flagella good stuff. <laughs> and I got to looking at this club that I had from Adrian. It's like, crap, that looks not the typical ball-headed work club where it's a perfect sphere. It's kind of an elongated pill shape. You know? mm. I was like, that looks like you know, bubonic plague. And, and I wanted to do a COVID ball-headed work club, but it, the issue was timing. Yeah. So I called Adrian and was like, hey man, let's, let's collaborate on a piece. I'm going to, you know, I'd like to use your, your club as part of this concept for as an extension of, of some of the other pieces that I've done. And he's like, yeah, sure, man, that'd be really, really cool, actually. So, <laughs> uh, we made the, the ball-headed, the, the pill-shaped club at the end. I used aluminum to kind of bend and shape those spikes. Uh, adds quite a bit of weight, but it's still pretty fairly balanced. And then I you know, replicated and painted uh, some of the beadwork from the gas mask. And that's, that's where it was born. I mean, it's kind of a long story for no <laughs> man. That is that's but there we are. That's everything. Yeah. Um, you're battling COVID. You know, you're battling the plagues. You're battling. You know, you're fighting them off with this war club, and you're protected with the mask and all the stories that go along with that, and the detail, man. I mean, like the little black on black skull that's at the top of the piece. Like I saw that thing from across the room, oh, wow. and I was just yeah, like. Right that thing <laughs> you know like that was pretty sick and uh that was just really cool um so yeah i mean i i think it's a timeless piece it's it's a collector's item type piece and um you can see this in any top gallery or museum or whatever that is and um i hope that this place this thing has those types of legs <laughs> you know that it does take off and go there yeah um, because it needs to be it needs to be spoken about it needs to be unpacked a little bit because of the historical value of it all too that you're talking about is that these things have been affecting our people for a number of years you know and i was talking to somebody earlier on you know in an earlier podcast and there was some apprehension and there was some conversation around whether or not as indigenous people as native people should we be still carrying out our ceremonies and going to longhouse and being in these confined spaces and things like that in this time where like we really didn't know what this thing was and what it was doing and how it was being spread and whatever else and i mean you know every year any person that goes to longhouse and they come out you know after the you know the midwinter ceremonies everybody's got a cough everybody's got a cold you know so we're all like in tight quarters we're all doing this and that we're tired we're worn out and things um so this one made it particularly scary you know a little bit to think about and um conversations were had about like well how do we do this can we do it outside the longhouse can we do it in another space do we have just the faith keepers take care of things for the people and you know i think ultimately people decided that um we're going to be believing in the medicine we're going to believe in our own strength and our own medicines and things like that and believe in our own our own um belief systems i guess and um you know, fortunately, I mean, it's it's we've been okay so far. You know, we haven't had too many major losses or anything like that. But um, it still makes you worried, and it still makes you kind of nervous because you know these things have come. You know, smallpox and blankets and bubonic plagues and things like that. And we had strong medicine then too. You know, 
Um, but I think so far, you know, I think that we're um, we're in a place and we're no, nowhere near out of the water, I don't think. But um, it's still something that we have to be considerate of. And um, this mask just really kind of, and the, and the club both kind of encompass a lot of that narrative and that story. And, um, you know, I think it's just really timely and it's great to have and to see. And, um, you know, and, and it's one that, too, I mean, pictures don't do it quite justice. You know, you really have to kind of see it. Um, I think the only next level, next level piece that I would have to say is seeing Dallin in a in the mask carrying the war club with like the full regalia, a bustle, you know, and like kind of. And, and for those of you who don't know this man, he is a mountain of a man. At are you six eight six nine six seven six seven? Okay, so imposing of a figure, like superhero, big, large like battling, you know, these types of things and, you know, with a big giant narf shield on the chest of like battling <laughs> indigenous rights and, and, and protecting things, um, you know, and, and I, 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 I tease here, but um, no, man, I mean, this is a, a really cool piece and um, I, I just absolutely love it and I, it, it was definitely deservedly so uh, best in show. You know, I think people really appreciated it and it was um, really well done. And Adrian, man, I mean, I'm glad that you were a part of this, you know. And I mean, you guys are cousins, and um, hopefully, he didn't bully you up too much to get that club out of you. <laughs> no, I actually gave it to him for free, so hopefully, he's going to barter something out of it still. So. I mean, at least a plane ticket to Colorado yeah. at some yeah, point, right? right? You know, it was snowboarding this winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lift ticket. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I mean, it's I, I just do a lot of carving, you know, and um, carving a few of those and. Some I've given away, some I've sold, you know, and just... Now, is this a root ball? Is this from the root of a tree? No, it's not a root ball. Okay. A lot of times I've used a, a lighter wood just because people use them for when they dance. Mm. So I don't want to make it like something heavy with their... You know, yeah, stuff. as, as yeah, laborsome. Like, have, yeah. have you done a root ball, actually, club? Have you gone that route yet? Have you... No, not yet. I've talked with uh, Mike about it a few times, and so I haven't gotten that far yet, but probably yeah. will. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Most well... Likely. Well, again, I mean, you know, it's you've got the space, you've got the time, and things like that, and um, you know, we'd we'd love to see something like that again, and it'd be great to see another collaboration or you know, stand a couple more standalone pieces and things like that. Um, but you know, I know you guys had a little bit of car trouble on your way up here today and whatnot. Um, I'm glad that you're both safe and you're you're well and you're okay and everything. And you know, I appreciate the fact that you both came back up. Um, I do want to say that there were um, a number of folks that came up and visited the the uh, the show today, and it was very well received. You know, and I think all the pieces that were in it, all the artists that were part of this, um, it really raised the bar and raised the level of um, of this exhibit. And, um, you know, we only hope that it's going to get better from here. And um, this, again, kind of set the bar. Both these pieces um, set the bar pretty high to uh, try to top for next year. And, um, you know, we're definitely appreciative of that. Um, anything big coming up on the on the, the horizon for both you gentlemen? Any other shows or anything like that that you guys want to kind of pub a little bit or kind of talk about that you're up to or projects that you guys are kind of working towards? Yeah, I've got um, uh, a show opening virtually next month with the Cherokee Art Market. Uh, I've been doing that show for a while. It's a great, it's one of the top five fine art markets for, for Indian country. Um, but I've also got a local show in Boulder County. Yeah. Uh, I think that opens um, second. And that's more of an in-person. So I've got a few pieces uh, that I'll have there. But yeah, come check them out. So is beadwork your primary medium that you work in? Is that what you prefer to work in? Uh, 
You know, that's a tough question. I, I'd say yes and no. Uh, I keep, I was just telling Adrian today, I'm trying to get out of beadwork, but, you know, it's one of the few things I'm actually pretty good at. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been beading a long time. I, I started creating uh, outfits and things, um, and then it sort of segued right into to, uh, the, the fine art stuff. But I do some illustrations. I'm trying to do more oil painting. I'm trying to do jewelry. Like I have a whole pretty diverse uh, medium pool that I'd like to get better at. But uh, I just you know, I have all these ideas for projects and not enough time. So with the illustration work, I mean, is it comic book type stuff, or what do you? Yeah, mean? that's kind of how I got my start. Was reading comic books as a kid and trying to copy the illustration styles. I do a lot of ledger art style stuff. Mm. Um, I've, I've won Best of Show at Santa Fe Indian Market for a couple of children's books that I had written. Um, and I'd like to make those more accessible, but you know, let's see. Public. In, in yeah, the oil yeah. painting, I like the, the transparency and the depth that you can create. Um, so we'll see where I go with that. That's awesome. Um, that's something to me that I would, I would really like to kind of investigate a little bit more, that lane of um, indigenous comics and comic books and things like that. I know there's a there's an artist that I'd like to get in touch with and have on the podcast is uh, Jay Ojik, mm -hmm. uh, his name is, and he's got a, a clothing line as well, and he's kind of branched out into some other things, um, but really investigating a little bit further because I think there's some really cool... Um, stories that our people have that would really kind of fall into some really great comic book stories and things like that and also developing heroes for young indigenous people you yeah. know that was something a lot of us didn't really grow up with you know I mean we looked at athletes and whoever else and you know the only representation that we saw on television oftentimes we weren't always cast in the best light you yeah. know so well it's cool because now there's there's avenues you know there's some um, native artists who are doing variant covers for Marvel there's an Indigicon um, in Albuquerque and in Denver where you know, artists and writers and fans of, of comic books in general get together to share and collaborate. It's really, really cool. That's awesome. Adrian, what do you got going on? Anything else coming up? I mean, you're getting ready for a coaching season yeah. again? and Yeah, we have, uh, I have lacrosse coming up. Uh, doing the off-season work a little bit. Uh, my youngest son just went to... An, uh, probably close to one of the last tournaments of the year for in Albany. Um, and then I have the spring season coming, and we're gonna, I'm going to help assistant coach the uh, Junior B Seneca War Chiefs. Uh, so we had a few games and just recently when we played Team USA um, for the U17 and U15 team. Uh, most of the things now, are, I, I make a good line of uh, wooden utensils and and things like that. So uh, a lot of rattles, a lot of drums, a lot of traditional instruments. Um, so I've, I'm prepping a lot of that right now for the upcoming holiday season. You know, I get called to come to set a table here and there. and uh, So just a lot of work like that. And every now and then I got to throw in a nice, you know, more expensive spoon or stone carving in there, you know, to have that as an option. But trying to do that more often. Uh, I, used, I originally started as a stone and bone carver mm. and I moved into wood um, I just couldn't I kind of really got into carving wood by learning I was taught how to carve uh, mass oh. so I've carved a few mass and um, over the years when someone needs it you know I got a few on order that people when they hear this like worth mine you know I'm like it's coming I'm sure working <laughs> on it um, but yeah mostly just a lot of uh, um, usable everyday items I make you know and people ask for it and, 
getting them ready for this coming up season and hopefully next year get some um, other pieces I have in mind to get working on um, for like for these kind of shows you know sure well hopefully this is a little bit more of a you know kindling and kind of gets your fire started you know because yeah. we'd love to see more of your work and kind of see it out here um, you know I, it, it's it's appreciated and I think you know I like what you're saying that you know these everyday usable items and things like that it's the same thing as with the language you know yeah. as, as these things are being used and brought back and used intentionally in part of our lives um, it makes them that much more real you know it's no longer set in the history of the past or whatever else it's it's come to life and people are still using these things and doing good things with them so. yeah all our usable cultural material uh, material culture are everyday items and we just always deck them out so that they look good you know and yeah kind of try to do the same thing with uh, you know paddles and spoons and bowls and all that but you know we just a lot of times I um, try to put some sort of effigy on the end so it has that character and some personality for someone like this is my bear spoon or something like that and, um, but I tell them it's usable mm -hmm. I mean don't put it in a glass don't hang it up use it you know it's made to be used you know and, yeah and if uh, it ever breaks or whatever, just buy another one for me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Job security. Yeah. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been fantastic. I've been, you know, excited to have this this talk with you both. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just hope that more people next year will, um, you know, find their way to the to the show and, uh, and other shows beyond. You know, I mean, I think it's great that, you know, Dale and you're on the – that circuit a little bit, you know, and going to these different places to show your pieces and your work and things like that and telling your stories, you know, I think that's important and um, to keep that alive. So, um, yeah, absolutely, gentlemen. I mean, I, I Nyawe to both of you um, yeah. and, um, you know, I appreciate your time and the work that you're doing and um, continue to, to fight the good fight and, you know, safe travels getting home. So, all right. I appreciate it. Right, power is in your heartbeat. Power is in your heartbeat.